Hey everyone, you are listening to the official podcast of the Evangelical Free Church of Ken, where our mission is to glorify God, helping each other become mature disciples of Christ as we worship, grow, serve, and reach. Samuel 15. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, it, there should be one in the pew in front of you, and it's page 280 in the, the Bible that is in the pew, um, if you're using one of those. Uh, those of you online, uh, same thing. Uh, we want you to have a copy of Scripture. And uh, those of you who are present here and online, who also happen to be Fighting Illini fans, I understand they're playing in 20 minutes. Try to focus. I already have one person warn me. If you hear me yell or something during service, it's probably not because they're filled with the Spirit. It's just Illinois playing. So, I understand, but I will say if they play like they did Friday, it's not going to be worth watching. So, we'll see what happens. But, anyway. We are continuing this series on worship today. And... uh, my prayer, church, is that as we've talked about prayer and we now are taking time to really think through and talk about uh, biblically what is worship, and really that's the idea of this series, rediscovering worship, um, biblical worship that goes beyond Sunday. And my prayer is these will be culture changing for us, that the more we study the text, the truths of Scripture, and see what God has called us to in Christ, the more we will be challenged to walk and live in a way that glorifies and honors God the Father, uh, praising His name. And uh, today, as we, as we take a step into really a narrative message uh, in 1 Samuel 15, uh, there's a lot happening here, but uh, I have to say, I've never... Uh, come into 1 Samuel 15 and seen an emphasis on worship until this last week. And it became so clear in my time in God's Word. I told my wife last night, I said, um, there is no doubt in my mind at what uh, the truth from this that God has made so evident to His people. And He made it clear in this narrative to Saul um, and to the Israelite people, but He also makes it equally as clear to us as we step into this together. Um, now, if you, if you remember from the last several weeks, at, at the end of this time, we've got one more week uh, focused on this series. Uh, and this is the main idea of this series that I really want you to grab hold of. And if you get nothing else out of this whole series, I want you to grip onto this main idea, which is... Uh, the concept that when we see God for who he's revealed himself to be, all of life becomes worship. Uh, that uh, the, the worship is not something merely reserved for this place or this location or this building, uh, but all of our life can, can be, and I, I want to be careful now I say that, it can be worship to God, but we've got to understand what biblical worship is, and in order to understand what biblical worship is, we have to know who it is we're called to worship. 
And so as we seek to understand in this who God has revealed himself to be, that's then what becomes uh, what what defines worship for us. And so if you get nothing else, I want you to understand if you have no concept of who God is in the Bible, not God in your own eyes, but if you have no concept of who the God of the Bible is, you will never be able to biblically define what worship is either. And that's why we need to go to God's word. Um, but the main, this is a series idea, but the main idea of today's message that we're going to see in 1 Samuel 15 is that biblical worship flows out of biblical obedience. Biblical worship flows out of biblical obedience. Now, before we jump into this, um, I want us to just go to the Lord in prayer and pray that he would open our eyes because uh, if there is a focal point that the enemy is very keen on getting us to miss, it's the importance of obedience. And he will do whatever it takes, um, even a basketball game, to distract you <laughs> from this morning. And uh, I, want, I want us to grip hold of this today. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and commit this to him. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the treasure it is. I pray today you would open our eyes to see how worship and obedience uh, mesh together and that you would equip us as your church to be all that you have called us to be and created us to be. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. First Samuel. Now, there's two questions. There's two main characters in our story today. Uh, and when I say story, I'm not talking about some made up fable. We're talking about historically the word of God and the narrative uh, messages that are clearly communicating God's truth throughout all of Scripture. But these two main characters are a guy named Samuel and a guy named Saul. And so out of the gate, the first question we should be asking is, who are they? Everyone say, who are they? Great question. Who is Samuel? Samuel, and I'm going to summarize a lot, but if you've never read through the books of First and Second Samuel, that's your challenge for this week, to understand contextually all that's going on. But if you were to begin in the uh, beginning chapters of, of First Samuel, you would uh, find uh, the story of this woman named Hannah. And Hannah's greatest burden was that she's unable to have kids. And Hannah went up to the temple along with the rest of her family and she pleaded before the Lord so much so that the priest was convinced she was drunk. And she says, I'm not. I am simply so much in agony over this. I'm giving this to the Lord. And the Lord hears her prayer and gives her a son. Now, specifically, Hannah's prayer is, God, if you open my womb and you give me a child, I will devote this child to your service all of his days. Enter in Samuel. And as soon as Samuel is weaned, Hannah takes him back and gives him over to the service of the Lord for the rest of his days. Now Samuel, very early on, experienced God's very pointed call on his life as he's laying down at night and hears the voice of the Lord call his name. And he runs to the priest. He says, I heard you calling me. What do you need? And of course, in a, we can imagine in a sleepy stupor, he, uh, uh, the, 
the, the priest goes, I, I didn't say anything um, to you. Go, go back. And this is all happening in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 3, if you want a reference for this. Uh, and uh, he goes again, and uh, two more times uh, this happens. And uh, in uh, verse 8 of chapter 3, it says, The Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord calls Samuel into service alongside himself. And in verses 19 through 20, of First Samuel 3, it says, Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. That's Samuel. In summary, that's Samuel. A prophet of the Lord called by God to speak on behalf of God before his people. Now, up to this point... Israel had not had a king. They experienced judges raised up for a specific time period to deliver the people out of oppression that was caused by their rooting into sin and worshiping other gods. But they had not experienced an individual king. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people demand a king. We want a king. Samuel warns the people, you want a king, this is what's going to happen. It's not good. But they demand it. We want a king, an earthly king like these other nations to rule over us. And God reminded Samuel, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. So, God gives the people what they want. Even in the midst of warning. And this brings us to Saul. So, if you're following along in 1 Samuel chapter 9... You see uh, this man described in verses 1 and 2 of Samuel, 1 Samuel 9. It says, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becheroth, son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. I always read that passage in First Samuel 9, and I go, Saul must have had a long neck. We missed that, apparently. So Saul is established and anointed as the king over Israel. And he has great military success. Saul is very successful as a king in carrying out this authoritative rule and reign. Seemingly positive for the nation of Israel. He leads Israel multiple successful conquests, but he begins to slip in his dependence on the Lord over time. And this brings us full scale to chapter 15, which is where we're going to sit this morning. Chapter 15, verse 1. It says, and Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted that Amalek didn't. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Everyone say, whoa. This is intense. Now, the first question that should arise out of this when we read a section of Scripture where the Lord is devoting a nation to destruction is to ask the question, what did Amalek do? Clearly, something took place to where God is in a way only God could do in perfect justice is bringing about something that he has declared he would do. So where we see this is clear back. So put your finger in first Samuel or make note of this so you can look it up later, because ultimately I don't want you to uh, take my word for it. I want you to see what God's word says in Exodus 17. We see what happened and what God says he's going to do about it. Starting in verse 8, it says, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Verse 9 of chapter 17. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hands, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. Some of you remember this story. In fact, my kids were just telling me about this story a couple weeks ago. They were learning in class. But many of you didn't know it was Amalek. Ties in with 1 Samuel. Verse 12. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, here's where it's important, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Here's where we see God make a promise And God is faithful to his word. Back to 1 Samuel 15. In understanding Amalek's grave error in coming out after the nation of Israel, and so denying the authority of God, and God declaring what will take place, we come to verse 4 of 1 Samuel 15. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Talim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go depart, go down from among the Amalekites, 
lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. Now, this is important to note here, church. Many times we read a small section of Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, we go, man, what is God's problem? He's so vindictive. How could he wipe this nation from the earth? Well, for one, he... This is rooted in generational sin that started back in Exodus. But we also have to see in the scope of this, not only God's justice and him keeping his word, but in these sections we just read his mercy upon those who walked in faithful obedience and humility before him. In this case, the Kenites who were spared, even though they dwelled among the Amalekites, God spares this nation. Interesting note. Verse 7. Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is the east of Egypt. And he took Agag. This is where things go bad, church. He took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. Everyone say, "Uh uh-oh. And devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best sheep... Best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Everyone say, oh, no. That was good. Two observations here, church. One, Saul obeys the initial command of the Lord. Do you see that? He obeys the command of the Lord. He doesn't argue with Samuel. He goes out. He does exactly, uh, exactly what God has said would need to be done to bring about his swift justice and fulfill his word from Exodus. The beginning, we don't perceive an issue. But as the narrative continues, Saul stops short of walking in full obedience. And all of this for what he believes to be a harmless substitute to full devotion. At this point, the Lord makes clear to Samuel his disappointment in this. And that's what happens in the verses that follow. And this brings us to the first post-instruction meeting between Samuel and Saul. So understand at this point, and what we're going to do is we're going to jump to verse 12. Uh, At this point, God has communicated to Samuel that he regrets making Saul king. This rooted in what Saul has just done in disobedience. Samuel is clearly not fully aware of this in its entirety. And yet here they come to meet together. Let's see how this meeting goes in verse 12. Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told to Samuel, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself. That's right. (laughs) Everyone say, oh dear. (laughs) He sets up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. This is what Saul says. I did it. And I love Samuel's response. I hear animals. What? 
Then is the bleeding of sheep in my ears and lowing of oxen that I hear. Samuel just doesn't beat around the bush. There's no, there's no common greeting like Saul. Blessings be you to the Lord, Samuel. I've done what the Lord asked me. Samuel goes, why did, why then do I hear livestock? Now obviously at this point we could assume uh, that Saul goes, oh, well, okay. I may start backpedaling a little bit. So Saul says in verse 15, they have brought them from the Amalekites. Look where he places the blame. For the people. So now he's like, oh, maybe I'm in trouble. Let's see who I can push this off on. The people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we've devoted to destruction. So Saul's kind of like, this is no big deal. This really isn't a problem. You see, the people, they had this great idea. And uh, when, when I read this, I, I instantly think of, uh, how many of you have seen The Lion King? Okay, have you ever noticed how terribly Timon treats Pumbaa? Have you picked up on this? This undercurrent where any time there's some uh, bad idea, it's blamed on Pumbaa. But any time there's a good idea, even if Pumbaa has the good idea, Timon takes credit for it. Right? And we see this same syndrome taking place in Saul, and we're guilty of the same thing. We're liable to take credit for that which seems good or benefits us, but as soon as things go south, who could I I say is, who's responsible for this? The people, they spared the best. But you know what? It's okay, Samuel. Their intentions were good. Because they're gonna, they, they took the best and they're gonna, we're gonna sacrifice them to the Lord in worship. So it's okay. It's okay. Everyone say, wrong. Verse 16, then Samuel said to Saul, stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And Saul says to him, speak. And Samuel says, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, still Ignorant of this. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent. I've brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil. Again, the people. Well, don't get mad at me, Samuel. The people took of the spoil. Sheep and oxen, the best of all things, devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And here we come to the statement that has the most profound resonance when we think about how does this have any application to us? Listen to what Samuel says. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen Than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. 
and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. How often, church, do we mistake the form of worship for the heart of worship? As we look through this narrative, it may become evident to us that Saul is in the wrong. And yet, very quickly, we fail to recognize how we end up living out the same narrative as Saul did. Where we may obey halfway what God has called us to, but in a facade of worship, we don't follow all the way through. How should we worship biblically? When we look at this example, we look at Samuel's instruction to Saul. Has the Lord great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? It's a rhetorical question. The answer to the question is, God would much prefer the obedient heart than the abundant gift that someone seeks to bring him. How should we worship biblically? Obey His commands. True biblical worship flows out of biblical obedience, church. And I have been so deeply convicted about this truth this week because we are guilty. <laughs> of getting so caught up in the form of what we think worship should look like, that we fail, we fail to actually worship. And biblically speaking, that's exactly what Saul did here. You know what? Hey, these are some nice, this is some nice livestock. And I'm sure the Lord will be honored by this. No. No. God, God, would have been glorified and worshipped in Saul's obedience to do what he said. <laughs> we have to distinguish between elements of worship and form of worship as a piece of this. Elements are rooted in biblical truth. What does the Bible tell us worship should be? And form can fluctuate uh, between opinions and cultures. Seriously. Uh, but there's one thing that should hold all of these things together, and it's this. And I challenge you to answer the question, is it possible for you to worship the Lord in truth if you are not walking in obedience? Because if we just come and we sing and we lift our hands or we, we praise the Lord regardless of what song we're singing, or we, we devote ourselves to opening our Bibles while we're sitting here listening to it taught. Or we go through the motions and check the box. 
But then I go into my week and I, I just don't live it. I, I just don't live it out. Am, am I really, am, am I really worshiping? Am I really worshiping the Lord? And we think back to what Jesus said in Matthew 17, where he said, with their voice, you praise me, but their heart is far from me. And we're in danger of that. We're, we're in constant danger of that, church family. Because we have minimized worship to a form that it takes rather than a truth that it is. Now, realistically, we have to ask the question, how has God revealed that worship, what form has God revealed that worship should take? So I want you to think about this, not in terms of what worship is, because we've understood in the last couple of weeks, worship is fully devoting myself to God and understanding who he is. And so what flows from that should be out of a motivation that stems from him in obedience to what he said. So here's, a, here's, here's some examples. Song. Song can be worship, but not all of it is. It doesn't take long to figure that out, right? Okay. Colossians 3. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Great. Songs, a form, form of worship. Now, what else do we see in Colossians 3? The word. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. That's worship. And we can take that over to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for what? Teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. In Matthew 28, we have a command of Jesus. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have given to you. And lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age. In Matthew 28, we have an element there of teaching. Passing on what God has entrusted to us. But there's something else present there. Baptism. Go. Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptism is an aspect of worship. Why? It's in devotion, understanding who God is. We tell people, we get baptized not because it saves us, but because it's obedience to what God has called us to as the church. To publicly profess, I follow Jesus. To walk in obedience in that way. Acts 2 talks about the same thing. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. This is after Peter has preached his sermon at Pentecost. And the response is, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of, sin, of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's another element, not just baptism as a form of worship here, but what else? Confession. And repentance. James 5.16 Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. Confession and repentance is a form of worship. 
Why? Because it's in obedience to what God has called us to, church. But it's not just confession here. It's something else, too. What do we see? Prayer. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And we could go, we could go on in this and talking about uh, the obeying and fellowship. Hebrews 10 tells us not to forsake meeting together as is the habit of some, but all the more as you see the day drawing near. As obedience, worship, giving, generosity. 1 Corinthians 9 tells us we should give what God has purposed in each one to give, not from compulsion, but rather out of the generosity of understanding that I'm dependent on the Lord and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust Him with this. That's why we say we, you could participate with us in worship through generosity or giving. It's a form of worship and obedience to what God has called us to in Christ. And in a little bit, we're going to take communion together. Jesus told His disciples, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you remember the Lord until He comes again. Obedience. Biblical worship flows out of biblical obedience. Could we be deceiving ourselves, church, into thinking what real worship is? I just want to challenge us to think about this and come back to the question that Samuel asked Saul. And by the way, Saul is very unhappy with Samuel's statement. And in the next, the rest of 1 Samuel 15, he seeks to kind of defend himself. Whoa, okay, I repent. He finally comes to a place of repentance. But at this point, it's too late. It's too late at this point for him to make right what he has done wrong. And in fact, there's multiple opportunities in the conversation with Samuel to repent of this and do exactly what God has called him to do. He doesn't. He blames it on other people. He blames it elsewhere. And in so doing, brings upon himself that which is just. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? And I would ask you the same question. Has the Lord as great a delight in your church attendance or how you physically worship him as in Obeying his voice. Behold, to obey is better than any of these things. If you are here today and seeking to worship God, it has to begin with a desire to walk in obedience to him. Otherwise, you ultimately end up worshiping your own God created in your own image. God's desire is to transform you, to make you new, literally reborn. To die to sin and to be raised to life in Christ Jesus. You have a choice. Some of you have made that choice very evidently, but your worship is one of outward expression, not inward change. You go through the motions and everyone may be convinced, but God is not 
He desires you more than he desires your motions. And that will always be true. Biblical worship flows out of biblical obedience. Now I'm going to have the worship team come up and we're going to sing a medley of songs. And in the process of that, I want you to reflect on these truths in your own life before we take communion. And I want you to think about where we're. We're going to sing just a medley of the wonderful cross. Here I am to worship Jesus, son of God. And as we sing this, you you have a choice and you can leave here making a choice. Um, You will leave here making a choice. To be surrendered to God, not just in action, indeed, but in obedience, in desire, in surrender or to continue a trajectory of worshiping the God you've created in your own image. Now in the process of this, here's the thing. If you are uncertain where you stand before a holy God, then I'm going to encourage you not to take communion. Because God's, God, there is no rebuke for the person who chooses not to take communion. Because they just don't feel like they're in the right space to do that. But there is for the person who takes it wrongly. And so you have to evaluate that in and of yourself. Here's the thing. I don't want you to leave here today. I don't want you to get into this week without having an assurance that you can be in right relationship with God the Father. And so if that's you, and you don't know where to begin, as we sing these songs... I'm going to be down here. And if there's multiple of you that need to talk through this and work through this and walk in this, then there's other people who are going to come and who are going to help walk this with you. And so if that's if that's you, I want you to I want you to I don't want you to leave here without having confidence in that. And whatever that looks like, maybe maybe it's during these songs that you need to take a different posture. Maybe it is that you need to come And bow before the Lord and humble yourself before you take communion in remembrance of what he's done. Maybe it is that you need to do something different because what you've been doing isn't working. And whatever that is, I want this time to be an opportunity for you to do that. Then we're going to take communion together as an act of worship and obedience to God to remember what he's done before we step into a world that desperately needs this hope. Amen? Let's pray. Father, you are good. You are gracious. You have given us far more than we deserve. Today, may you help us to reflect upon what decision we need to make and to commit that to you with everything we have. It's in Jesus' name we pray.